This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome to GabFest Reads for the month of July. I am thrilled to be here with Vanessa Hua who is the author of the book we are going to talk about. It is a novel called Forbidden City. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, thanks so much for having me on, Emily. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I'm gonna start by gushing a little bit. I'm a total fangirl of yours. Um, you wrote a book called A River of Stars a few years ago that I thought was fabulous. And that made me really excited to read this very intriguing novel. So I wanted to start just to lay the groundwork just a little bit for listeners. The main character's name is Mei. She is a Chinese teenager from the country in China. And she goes on a journey because she is recruited by the Communist Party to join a dance troupe of girls who perform and really serve the male elite of the Communist Party. The people who the girls are interacting with include Chairman Mao. And so it is really the relationship between May and Chairman Mao that is the focus and spine of the book. She gets caught up in a lot of palace intrigue and then in the tumult and violence of the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. And so we see both Mao and these seismic events in Chinese history through her eyes. So Vanessa... I understand from your author's note that a photograph helped inspire this book. Can you tell us a little bit about it and why it caught your interest? And in fact, I happen to have a copy handy about, uh, listeners can't see, but about a decade and a half ago, I was watching a documentary of China um, and up pops this black and white photo of Chairman Mao surrounded by giggling teenage girls. And some of them are dressed in plaid. They almost remind me of Bobby Soxers. And that's when I learned that Mao was a fan of ballroom dancing. And in fact, there was an American journalist, Agnes Smedley, in 1937, when she traveled to the rebel stronghold uh, to, to, cover, uh, to cover them. Um, she taught them foxtrot, square dancing. Um, and in the decades that followed, he had these cultural work troops, as they were called, and these young women would partner with him on the bedroom and on the dance floor. You have this amazing bit in your author's note in which you say that you were looking for information about this dance troupe and Chairman Mao's interactions with them. And so you found the memoir of Mao's doctor. And he wrote... 
To have been rescued by the party was already sufficient good luck for such young women. To be called to the chairman was the greatest experience of their lives. Imagine what it meant for a young girl to be called into Mao's chambers to serve his pleasure. Which, of course, is an incredibly (laughs) male-centric portrayal and spin on what was happening to these girls' lives. And I wonder if you wrote the book with that in mind, thinking of giving May's perspective as a kind of corrective. Definitely. Um, I, when, when I read that, as, as I mentioned in my author's note, when I looked for more information, there wasn't much. And, you know, to have what it meant for these young women summed up as exhilarating and, a, and an honor, I knew it had to be more complicated than that. And I think that's really where fiction can flourish, where the official record ends. Um, and for me, I always treated the research I found as the floor and not the ceiling. Um, and and I, I think that's where, as a novelist, uh, I can really get at the stories of young women like May um, who have a hand in history, but don't even really merit a footnote. And were there other books you were kind of thinking of? I mean, I'm a big fan of this. I think of it as like its own subgenre, right? I think the first book I read like this was called The Red Tent, and it was imagining a story from the Bible from the perspective of um, Dina, who is very briefly appears as a rape victim, but she gets to have her whole own novel. Recently, uh, Circe, which is a book about you know, this temptress from the Greek tragedies, she got her own voice. And there are obviously, I'm sure, a whole bunch of other books in this vein. And I wonder if you were reading about them and thinking about them or really just striking off on your own. Oh, definitely. Uh, Tracy Chevalier's Girl with a Pearl Earring was, uh, you know, a favorite of mine. And that novel really showed me how even in an era or time period in which people are constrained by patriarchy, by culture, by tradition, there are ways in which people have agency. Uh, women, let's say, specifically, in which um, even in a thought or in the smallest gesture, they are resisting. And I was careful with May not to be anachronistic. She isn't some 2022 20, teenager, yet all the same. I think so often uh, teenage girls get written off or dismissed whatever culture or era they're in. And Forbidden City is a way of exploring how how someone like May survive those years. Um, in real life, there was a, one of Mao's companions, Zhang Yufeng, met him when she was 18, was at his side when he was 31, and survived, you know, handled his correspondence. People had to go through her to, to get to him. Um, and this was during a time period in which uh, all his rivals were falling by the wayside. So I felt in Forbidden City with May, I could explore how someone despite being so young, could survive these political intrigues. So May um, and the dance troupe are in the Lake Palaces, which is the um, residence and sort of center for Mao's um, power and sort of for his government, although that's kind of interesting because you almost portray him as like not really governing. That was pretty fascinating to me. In any case, the Lake Palaces are really the setting for the book, and I wonder how you created that world for these girls. So the Lake Palace is, is my stand-in for Zhongnanhai, which uh, today uh, remains the country seat of power, you know, the official residence, um, government offices are there. 
um, but it's closed to the public. I did travel to China in 2008, though, and I remember walking along its high red walls. And I traveled to the Summer Palace and other places with with gardens. And there are written descriptions and a a few photos of it inside. And so that in that way, I was able to portray this this cloistered world. And you know, many visitors to China have been to what's known as the Forbidden City, the former imperial palaces that became a public museum in 1925. But the lake palaces, Dongnanhai, what's behind those red walls is, is the true Forbidden City these days in, and in the days of Mao. One of the things that struck me about particularly the first half of the book is that much of it is about the girls' relationships with each other and their internal rivalries and May's relationship with um, a couple of different characters, Busy Sean and Midnight Chang. And May is this, um, you portray her as really coming from the country, kind of in this all-thumbs way. She doesn't look the part of a kind of dancing figurine. She feels very awkward. She's trying to figure out how to fit in. And some of these other girls are just more sophisticated than she is. I mean, I loved this move of making so much of the first half of the book about these relationships among these girls. But I wonder sort of what you were trying to convey. They're not necessarily having some friendly set of interactions. It's almost a little bit mean girls um, happening among them. And I wonder why you imagined it that way. Well, I think even with uh, with my first novel, A River of Stars, which kind of the opening involved a dozen pregnant women together, <laughs> what happens in the dynamics there? So I'm I'm very interested in group dynamics, and and in particular in Forbidden City, what we see within the dance troupe um, becomes the rivalries, the sort of petty revenge, the claims of patriotism. All of that gets echoed writ large in the Cultural Revolution, and. You know, for all its claims of, of uh, supporting grand ideals um, in, you know, in that tumultuous decade, really, it was a lot of score settling, neighbors against neighbors, students against teachers, children against parents. And I, I wanted within the dance troupe to get a really visceral sense of what that kind of betrayal would look like once we begin to see it unfold uh, in the second half of the novel. I was also really interested in May's dynamic with her family. So when the book begins, she's in her village with her parents and her two sisters. And we see some love in her departure, but we also see real austerity and suffering and some coldness in this family. And then later in the book, her recollections of them, I thought, became much warmer. And I wondered if that's how you see it, if it's sort of that she becomes fonder of them when she misses them desperately because she's having to figure out all these difficult things for herself, or whether you think I'm reading too much coldness into the beginning of the book. How the family interacts in those opening pages is is a matter of survival. I don't know if she necessarily sees it as herself sees it as as cold. Um, I mean, they've survived famine, they've known a lot of suffering, and what they're able to offer each other, as limited as it might seem, whether it's mushrooms in a bowl or, um, you know, a final bath before she leaves the village, these are how they're able to express their their feelings for each other. But it's true. Um, I think only with distance can you begin to see your upbringing or your family in a different light? And when she's in search of uh, Dong Kwai, the 
the herbs. She's, you know, in desperate need of the advice and, and help of her mother, but she's, she's very, she doesn't feel that uh, distance until she actually is very far away and, and has the sense that maybe she won't see them again. That only comes in hindsight. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. 
out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. You mentioned her search for these herbs, and they're very important to her because her mother has given her some supply to take with her to help ensure that she doesn't become pregnant. Then she starts this sexual relationship with Mao, which begins with a pretty brutal rape scene, and then progresses into a more complicated relationship, again, I think at least partly because May has to survive. And I wonder how you were thinking about all of those dynamics. I mean, this must have been a tricky, difficult set of passages for you to navigate your way through as a writer because you didn't want to be anachronistic. You have to imagine what May really would have been able to do in those moments. And yet at the same time, you know, you're obviously really aware of our backdrop of sexual assault. And so I just wonder how you thought through all of those um, tricky issues. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I I turn to memoirs about relationships between younger women and older men. Um, I also fiction as well w- that examined these complicated relationships. And it's true, I didn't want to be anachronistic. The notion of consent wouldn't have entered her her mind uh, then, or you know, anywhere else in the world in the 1960s. But I think it did help that I wrote this book over a very long period of time. Um, I started it in 2007 and finished the final edits last year. So that, you know, as I was working through uh, the last you know, set of revisions, the Me Too movement was um, heavy on my mind. And so too, notions of, of demagoguery and what people will do when they believe someone is a god. And so... With this novel, I wanted to really examine, difficult as it was, what it meant for someone so young to be in the inner circle, to be the companion of someone who has such immense power over her and her family and the country, and yet what she might do to survive. Are we meant to see Mao in a sort of intimate way with all his foibles? Like, did you feel as a writer that you were able to get under his skin? I mean, he's, it's like, talk about a larger than life figure, right? I can think of very few historical figures that I would have more trouble imagining as a flesh and bone human being. Right. He's iconic in the true sense of the word. His gigantic portrait hangs over Tiananmen Square. It's been endlessly repro- reproduced on the cover of the Little Red Book. Um, but the way I approached his character, um, and actually Mays as well, uh, was through the visceral. I went to Stanford and the most popular class on campus my freshman year and, and actually still remains really popular, I heard, social dancing. And so I know what it's like to be waiting in hushed anticipation before the music begins. Um, and also, you know, in the, I was in my 20s, I became a swimmer after I injured my foot running. And, you know, as we see in the novel, the chairman spends quite a bit of time at the pool and there's a, there's a uh, pivotal scene, um, a river swim in Wuhan that sort of presaged his, you know, public return to power. So I know what it's like to to sort of be in the water, um, the the sort of disconnect from the world that 
he in some ways must have found vital. And so I was able to bring that into creating his character and, and, and Mays as well. So I wanted to bring up one more character in the book, um, Teacher Fawn. She's the leader of the dance troupe. She's the sort of mother hen figure among the girls. But she also, I think, has kind of two sides. In some ways, she's a mentor for May. She's promoting May. And then in other ways, she seems to be quite manipulative and kind of playing things for herself. And I don't think you really resolve that tension, and I would say that's a strength in the book. Um, but then she meets quite a sad fate um, toward the end of the novel. And I wonder kind of what you were thinking with this character, what you wanted to say as you were writing her. Gaining and holding on to power is complicated and a thousandfold more if you're a woman. And for for teacher fan, um, I think I... In an, an earlier draft, I had sort of written her fate off the page, um, just that she'd lost her power. But as a writer, you realize you have to go to the, the dark place, the place where that, it, to me, seemed her, her true fate, that those who hold tightest onto power, no matter what sort of uh, reasoning they give themselves that they're, this is for the greater good or for the good of these girls... The Cultural Revolution was a time when the mighty fell, and and for her, um, yeah, it, the what happens is, is a reflection of that. So this book has a pretty dark vision of Chinese communism at the time, right? I mean, we see a lot of corruption, a lot of rivalries, jockeying for power um, among Mao and the people who are working for him in various ministries. And then we see this real battle for survival as the Red Guard, these university students, really gain momentum and start to try to take down um, older figures at universities. We start to see struggle sessions and a lot of violence. You're writing for an international audience, I'm sure, but primarily probably an American audience. Um, And I just wonder how you were thinking about portraying this era of Chinese history. I imagine you did lots of reading about it, but also... I'm sure you were thinking about how China was going to come across. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. I've had questions from uh, who from people who say like, "Oh, is there something in the Chinese character that makes them open to brainwashing oh, God. or demagoguery?" And I'm like, "No, no, no, no. We just have to look to America today or anywhere." I, I think, if anything, again, having written this novel over a long period of time, we really see that the past is not as distant as it seems, geographically or temporally. I, I think in some ways that other readers have been able to see that, that they tell me how timely the book feels in terms of its discussions of female bodily autonomy or how hate can get stirred up against other people. And so for me, that's as both a reader and writer of historical fiction, that's one of its pleasures that we can learn about another era and hopefully it's just the beginning of learning about it like i've i've talked to people who say they're they're googling along while they're they're reading the novel but yet i, I think it's the op- opportunity to reflect on our own era as well yeah that's very well put so toward the uh, maybe last third of the book, May goes on a journey. And first, the traveling is something she's doing in the company of Chairman Mao. But then she's on her own. And you really show us different parts of China. You show us what effect the Cultural Revolution is having on different communities. 
I thought this was such a strong part of the book, and I wonder um, why you made that choice. Again, it's interesting. I think in an early draft, I wrote it all like in 15 pages, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll I'll just have her get to where she needs to go. But I saw... I remember uh, Charles Fraser's Cold Mountain during during the Civil War, just what it meant to to go on that journey um, and to see glimpses of it, um, and that that was important to me. I think to kind of fill out what could have otherwise been a cloistered sense of of what um, of the Cultural Revolution, because Mao was often his handlers kept him. Uh, you know, behind the high red walls or in various villas. So that wouldn't have been a true picture of the Cultural Revolution. I wanted to show once she was on the run, um, what was was happening and the the huge, you know, sweep of, of, of the country. And, you know, China's so large, what happens in one place versus another, even today, can, can be really vary. And I thought um, her journey was a way of getting... Uh, various slices of it of, of and, and, and conveying the sort of overall sense of what was happening in different areas. Pregnancy and birth is a theme in this book eventually, and it was very much the focus of A River of Stars. And I wonder why that is a vein that you are mining. Um, you used the word visceral earlier, and I think your descriptions of pregnancy and birth and the kind of intimacy you portray it with has a visceral quality to it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, it's funny, after I finished writing A River of Stars, um, and I, I wrote it, you know, the, the, the earliest draft of the short story that would become A River of Stars, I wrote nine months after giving birth. So I wrote the novel, and afterwards, in my mind, I had thought it was a book about immigration and identity, and my husband pointed out, oh, it's actually about motherhood as well. And I said, I suppose you're right. <laughs> I, I think sometimes you don't realize what the themes are in your work until afterward. I was drawn to that notion, maybe because I had become a mother um, and, you know, my sons are now 10 and a half. Um, And I think with Forbidden City, which I actually was actually the first book I ever drafted long before I had uh, kids. I think, um, again, maybe I was interested in those periods of life when um, women are so vulnerable and when they might consider, you know, what, how is this going to change the course of my life? And I think there's a, you know, May says towards the end, like, when I was younger, I didn't want to give birth to a hero, I wanted to be the hero. And so I think that's something maybe that I'm trying to resolve as a writer or, or mother. Um, and I think maybe that's, that's a choice for, for all those who decide to get pregnant, like what Who will they be after having kids? So one of the notes the book ends on is this idea of young women being used as propaganda for the Cultural Revolution. And so you have this description of um, one of a kind of image of this like perfect revolutionary young woman and then a member of the Red Guard who's also a young woman saying she served the people with all she had. This kind of idealized notion of patriotism from this female perspective. And then you have this interesting comment from May's point of view. Um, she says about this girl, what a stupid girl, what stupid girls we were. 
And there's a kind of harshness in that description that felt very honest to me. Not at all sort of like fangirl. And I, I'm just curious. Um, it comes quite late in the book. And so it ends up striking this note, I think, of complexity about the role the girls themselves are playing. Yeah, definitely. And this novel does explore both what it means to be a hero and a villain, which, when you think about it, are both sides of the same coin. Uh, someone, for some purpose, is is flattened to just a few details. Um, and in that erasure, you can project, the powers that be can project what they want onto these villains or heroes. But for May, this book is a, a journey of her uh, from you know, youthful idealism to disillusionment. And on one hand, I think she's she's quite hard on herself. I mean, she is very young and she is was in the grip of um of of what was, you know, how she'd been raised and um, you know, the the people at in power had an interest in pitting the girls against each other. Yet on the other hand, uh, you know, this is told in as a retrospective narration. She has a clearer sense that she can't just say like, "Oh, I was young, and that's why I I did things that were questionable or c- complicit." She's trying to own up to what it meant to be a part of this this apparatus, even as she was uh, a pawn in it. So this book is in its beginning. And in other aspects, a story of immigration in the end, um, a story of traveling to America. Why did you make that choice? Well, as a reporter at, at the San Francisco Chronicle, I often covered San Francisco's Chinatown. And the little old lady or that that grandfather, they often had the most like exciting stories that one would never know seeing them hustling down the sidewalk with their elbows out. <laughs> <laughs> and I I wanted to to get at that. On one hand, I wanted the retrospective narration. So I knew that in coming to America, um, she might finally feel there was enough distance, um, even though she has her own challenges here. Um, but, you know, San Francisco's Chinatown is uh, a special place to me, both as a somewhere where I went when I was uh, growing up, um, and then as a reporter and, you know, as, as a setting for, um, both a river of stars and the ep- prologue and epilogue of Forbidden City. I felt myself hungry for more of May. She's quite young at the end of this book still. She sort of has her whole life ahead of her, so to speak, or at least a major part of it. And I wonder if you have thought about having her character use this book as a jumping off point for another novel. That's interesting you you say that because in the multiverse, an early version of the novel was perhaps 30% Chinatown and she gets caught up in the gang warfare of the 1970s. <laughs> so who knows? Uh, for now, I, I feel like I've come to the end with May, but there could be an opportunity for us to see her again. <laughs> All right, good. Well, I would be down for that. Um, Vanessa Hua, thank you so much for joining me. Um, Your book, Forbidden City, is a terrific read, and I hope people pick it up this summer. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Emily. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. 
In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.